This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The scramble for COVID-19 vaccines began at the outset of the pandemic, but the UK took a relatively novel approach and assembled a crack team of venture capitalists, scientists, and business leaders, including Clyde Dix, who selected and bet on untested technologies like mRNA with the hope that these jabs would allow life and the economy to return to normal. Nearly a year and a half later, the results are way beyond Dix's expectations. Britain has administered over 84 million doses to the public, which means over half of the population is fully vaccinated against a deadly virus that is still very much with us. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, a columnist at Reuters Breaking News. I cover the pharmaceutical industry. From the outset of the pandemic last March, there was a widely held view that vaccines would be the way back to a normal life. In Britain, Prime Minister Boris Johnson turned to the business community to put bets on certain vaccine candidates. The wages were placed by a team, including Clyde Dix, scientist and businessman, who was appointed deputy chairman of the UK Vaccine Task Force and took over from venture capitalist Kate Bingham when she stood down in December. Dix also runs a biotech business, C4X Discovery. Listed on London's junior stock exchange, the biotechnology firm struck a licensing agreement with Francis Sanofi in April that was worth more than 400 million euros. Clive, you're very welcome. Hello. Well, it's been a very busy year and a half for you. I wondered, Clive, if you might be able to take us back to, let's say, February or March 2020. When did you realize just how lethal COVID-19 was and how did you think that maybe you would have to do something in finding a solution? Okay, so as soon as the news broke that there was this potential virus spreading in from China, I was alerted and, and listening to all the news flow that was coming out. And because of my background in science as a pharmacologist, and at one point I founded a, a vaccine company called PowderMed, which was actually sold to Pfizer as it happened. I was very in tune with the whole area of pandemics and the need for vaccines. And in fact, I'd worked on projects with the government way back on what you had to do for vaccine preparedness and what sort of technologies could, could help. So I was, I was watching with interest and, and to some degree in trepidation once some of the data started rolling out the news. And, and um, I realised well before the task force was announced that there was a lot of activity going on and was sort of slightly worried that I wasn't involved in that when you know you can help you you Mm. want to get involved so um I then put my name forward in fact I know Kate Bingham very well so I phoned her up actually the day before she was announced and said um Kate I'm here to help you 
I kind of I think it's so interesting what you just mentioned that you were part of a kind of pandemic preparedness. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because it seems from from things that have come out of the government since um, the kind of the pandemic response that there wasn't really much there uh, in terms of a plan. I just wonder. So when did this all start? When were you kind of in discussions with the government about uh, pandemic preparedness and and for, to your point, wh- when were you kind of thinking, did you think that this was possible, a kind of COVID-19 outbreak was possible? Oh, I absolutely thought it was possible. We we believe the scientists that work in the sort of vaccine infectious diseases area have believed that we were due a pandemic and we thought it was probably going to be flu and there was a fair amount of preparedness going on for that. Um, but back in the t- mid-2000s, because Powder Med was involved in developing vaccines, we were invited into a number of very intense workshops to put together plans for the government. We even ran sort of simulations of pandemics over days and looked at what we'd need to do to respond. And there was a very large pandemic preparedness document um, prepared in those days. But that was a long time ago. You see, it's 15 years ago or so now that that was done. But I think the the government was well aware and, and many of the people in the vaccine community were aware that there was preparations required and there was certainly some stockpiling going on of components for vaccines and adjuvants and the like throughout yeah. throughout that period. And Clive, what had you been thinking about vaccines up until this point? Because I think that the pandemic has, has sort of created a revolution in terms of, of vaccines because this mRNA technology was relatively untested before you know, uh, uh, millions of people started getting doses of, of Pfizer and BioNTech and, and Moderna's vaccine. So the vaccine industry is a rather interesting one in that there isn't a lot of commercialization of vaccines because it came from a very much a cottage industry vaccine. But mm. Vaccines were considered something for mass vaccination, and therefore they had to be cheap. And of course they were. And we, we ran a lot of um, campaigns to re- countries of, of um, disease because of vaccines but but there was never a lot of investment in them they were very old technologies they were I mean, started off with just brewing viruses and bacteria up and inactivating them and that was the vaccine but a, not a, a huge amount of investment had gone into vaccines perhaps since they first were introduced up until very recently and maybe the last 10 years there's been a lot of small companies mainly, and you'll see that most of the new technologies have come from small companies that were seeing that the, the sort of biological revolution, if you like, the, the advent of genetics, molecular biology, meant that you could actually start designing rather more sophisticated vaccines. And that, that's sort of what's been happening in the background. And when the pandemic hit, everybody you know, put their hands to the pump and check to see whether any of these technologies could actually be brought forward rapidly and used and, and get us to a better place. Yes. And I mean, that's something I think, Clive, one of the, the reasons from a Breaking Views perspective that I thought it would be so interesting to speak to you is there is a real venture capital element to, to this vaccine task force and the strategy that it used in order to, to uh, choose the vaccines and, and to put bets on them, as I said at the beginning, Again, I just wondered if you could kind of talk to me a little bit about that, about your kind of strategy. So, Because you obviously had, as you mentioned, all of these kind of technologies that were out there, but you had to then decide which ones to choose, which ones to put money on and pre-orders. And you were also competing with so many other countries that were that were in the exact same position. 
So I just wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what those conversations were like last year um, and how you decided on specific candidates. Yeah, okay. So, so yes, a sort of venture capital approach. And a, if you like, it was a, an entrepreneurial biotechnology approach. So I mean, obviously, Kate knows how to assess investments from an investment point of view. And the first thing she does is put together a group of experienced scientists that can that can look at what, whatever it is she's looking at to invest in. So I've done that many times over, either been selling things into venture capital uh, market or buying things. So I, I knew exactly what it was going to take. So it was a matter of putting together the right team and then having some criteria for assessing what was out there in paper to start with. We weren't we, desktop stuff. We weren't going straight to all the companies because there were too many of them, over 200 vaccines in development or very quickly being seen to be in development. So we we had to do a desktop analysis and our approach was very much, you know, Kate and I talked about it, it had to be a portfolio. We had no idea which vaccines would work at that point because there'd never been a, 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 car, a SARS vaccine that worked. So we had to look at all the technologies choose some platforms that were the most promising and then go out and get vaccines in those platforms that can deliver in the time frame. So we had a number of criteria. Delivering within the time frame was the number one criteria, of course. And then we we chose a series of vaccines up with different platforms, the adenoviral vaccines, the protein subunit vaccines with adjuvants, the live inactivated viral vaccines and the um, RNA vaccines. And we wanted to see if we could get at least one, if not two of each of them and any others that might come along that were probably off our radar to start with. And in, in other technologies, if they were there, they turned out not to be any, but um, the only one that was close was DNA vaccines, but they, they weren't quite ready. So we, we went through that process, desktop process. It was, it, was very quick, a couple of weeks. The whole team, I pulled a team together of seven or eight people, and all of whom were either semi-retired or retired people who'd worked in the vaccine field in different elements of vaccine research, development, clinical development, and manufacturing. And we drove into all that data and, and decided on, I think it was 20 companies that we thought had something of interest and then approached them all. And we approached them with the view of, look, we're quite interested in, in helping you get a vaccine to the point of approval. So if you've got any holes in your um, abilities, in other words, you might be short of cash, you might be short of manufacturing, you might not have the, the wherewithal to do clinical development and offer them help along with, we, we asked them if they could put their data in a data room so that we could analyse it in detail in our own time. And very much went into the discussions with each of the companies as though it was a partnership, not a, it wasn't a contractual thing as such. We weren't procuring. We were actually in a partnership to contract with them at the end of it to deliver vaccine, but we were helping them all the way along, along there. So as a real example with Nova, Novavax, mm. they, they're relatively small and, and to get them to manufacture enough vaccine for us to have in the UK since they were mainly committed to the US, we offered to build the capability that they needed in the UK with um, with Fuji up in Dar um, Stockton on Tees. Uh, we also offered to run their clinical studies using our clinical network and with the registry which we set up and 
we managed to recruit 15,000 people in six weeks for them. And everything we did, it was a it was a true partnership, but we, we offset any, any cash up front with um, a discount on the prices of the vaccine. That was, that was the model. And was that a like was that a, a sort of novel approach compared to what your peers were doing, what maybe the US or Europe were doing in, in their their approaches? I mean, Israel obviously kind of famously came to this kind of agreement with Pfizer about you know sharing data. Um, but you were obviously actually talking about making manufacturing facilities and investing. Um, was that something that that's kind of set you apart? Because as I said, it must have been a very competitive process talking to Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and trying to to get your hands on as many doses or potential doses as you could. Yeah, it was different for each company, but but I think all, con- well, I think Europe was slightly different to me. It went very much for a contractual procurement process, but and um, was, was looking to see what the companies would offer. I think the US had all sorts of funding going on to help accelerate things, and other countries did did clever deals too. So we... We, that that's what we could offer, and that's what we did offer. What, what I just told you, and and it, it was so different in each company because, of course, the Oxford vaccine, as it was originally called, was a deal the government brokered with AZ before we started the task force that they would they would become the partner. You know, I think the government looked at three or four companies, mm-hmm. and uh, AZ won that won that contract and. Then we helped AZ and Oxford with some of the clinical development. Most of it was in train and working already, but where we could, we helped and we helped keep it keep it running. And Clive, did you, it was interesting, I thought, following kind of as the vaccines came out, there was obviously a lot of fanfare and excitement, obviously, because as you said, I mean, you were only thinking you put bets on 20 vaccines, hoping that one would come good. We obviously have three that are now um, active in the UK that people are are, are receiving but yeah, I was just kind of curious. We saw that AstraZeneca, obviously, there were some issues around the kind of efficacy data that people were starting to question. Uh, and then there was obviously the rare cases of blood clots. And there seemed to be kind of a focus on, on the company. And I just wondered if you if that was something that surprised you as well during this during this process as vaccines were, were kind of coming out. There did seem to be kind of a big focus on, on, on AstraZeneca and people's kind of people, I guess, were sort of fearful about taking it because of all sorts of, of kind of discussions that were going on about it yeah well I, th- I think the media are the media and they do their own thing and and i think they they somehow got on a very unfair role with az and you know there was pfizer producing the vaccine that was costing a lot of money um they charged uh, a lot more than all the others but there was no there was no bad media around the pfizer vaccine and yet az offered to give the vaccine to the whole world and help set it, license it, and manufacture it everywhere, and make sure it was accessible to, to all. Um, it wasn't making a profit. It, it started very quickly with an academic group, and you know, it may be that that wasn't done with exactly the same level of rigor that a pharmaceutical company would do a vaccine, and that's why some of the data was uh, in different studies. But in, in the end, those studies were helpful. We found all sorts of things out because they weren't just very down the line studies uh, we found out the the longer dose interval for instance was was useful and and so you know when you run things at speed you expect some bumps in the road and and there were some bumps probably there probably were with other vaccines too but i felt i felt that the the attention that az and the oxford vaccine got in a negative sense was very unfair and very unjust i think they they produced a very good vaccine 
okay, so we found a small, very small and very rare um, side effect, if you like. But we expect that with all the vaccines, there's now something going on with, with the Pfizer vaccine too. And there will be others. I'm sure that when, when we analyse when this all of these vaccines have been in multiple millions of people, we'll find all sorts of small signals that are slightly concerning, but nothing as concerning as getting COVID. So I did feel it was an unjust set of media attention on the Oxford vaccine. It's still a very, very good vaccine and it saved many, many lives. And, and Clive, from what you know, as, as an expert in vaccines, who was so crucial in, in kind of bringing them to, to, to people's arms, basically, there is obviously an anti-vax movement. There are people who are very concerned about the long-term um, issues that could come from taking a vaccine. I was just wondering, what would you say to them? Because we're obviously seeing rates in the UK of, of vaccine take-up. They're sort of plateauing a bit. Um, I just wondered if what are your what would you say to somebody who was hesitant or reluctant or refusing to take a vaccine at this point? Well, I think if they're hesitant, you, you can show them the data and you can talk to them about how safe they are. If they're refusing because they're anti-vaxxers, I think there's nothing you can do. You can just those people have to go their own route. You, you can't persuade an anti-vaxxer that they're wrong. I think that they have a mindset that says. You know, they, they've made their mind up and, and, and that's, that's really up to them. And as long as they don't interfere with those people that want to take vaccines and don't become too um, vociferous, then, then that, you just have to sort of ignore, ignore, ignore the whole thing. I think the hesitant people you must talk to, you must understand why they're hesitant. You must, you must be respectful of their hesitancy and why they're hesitant and, and see if you can help educate them that these things are safe. I mean... Many people out there that don't particularly like vaccines should, should just realise that most vaccines you take two doses, one or two doses, and that's it in your body, and it's probably gone within, within hours. The same people may go into a health food shop and have all these weird potions and concoctions, and they take them every day, and no one knows what those things do, but they're happy to just carry on doing that. But the fact that a vaccine is seen as, a, as an unsafe and a dangerous medicine is ludicrous when it's saved more lives and the amount of damage they've caused in the main has been it's been very, very small. I was just gonna say, like in the UK today, we're we're up above 50% in terms of, of of double vaccines. Where where do you think we need to get to? I mean, the I the hope was that we would have everyone fully vaccinated by the end of July. Do you think that that's some sort of achievable? I think I think we'll still get all the adults vaccinated by the end of July, if not early August. And, and and I think that's all we really need to do. I'm I'm not of the persuasion that we should be vaccinating children. And um, why is that? Well, first of all, it's it's all risk benefit. So having said that, they're safe. They're safe as far as we know. Mm. Most vaccines that we know are very safe. It's because the development has taken eight, nine, ten years, and we've been able to look at all the people that get them in the trials over that time. So. There may be some minor long-term effects. There may. We don't know. Um, and we can't we can't rule that out. And children get don't get very severe disease. So what what's the benefit of giving children the vaccine? I mean, I know that there was all that kerfuffle around um, mumps and measles and parties to, for kids to have get get the disease rather than um, be vaccinated in the early I think it was 60s wasn't it 60s and 70s and that that was seen as a bad thing to do but actually I, I personally don't think 
you know, young people getting it, having a few days off, not feeling particularly great. It's probably no different to the flu. And then the only thing that's just a very slight, a slight concern is long COVID, which we'll get to understand and then we'll know how big a problem that will be. Uh, and I just was curious on your thoughts then on the vaccine boosters. What what are your thoughts on what you can see from, from the data and the science as to maybe who will be vaccinated, how long they'll last for? What can you see as kind of the new normal for us all in terms of, I guess, protection against COVID-19? Yeah, so so the data that, that's been generated to date on duration of action, most of it's come from the Oxford vaccine, but quite a bit now from the from the Pfizer vaccine. And and it's looking like they've got relatively good um, protection or they've got they produce an immune response that doesn't seem to wane for at least nine months to a year. And that means that since if they haven't been waning yet, they're not going to suddenly wane because they don't these things don't suddenly drop off a cliff they then slowly go down but they're not going down at the moment so we've got a, we've got a year's worth of protection at least i would say and then on top of that particularly with the oxford vaccine what you get is a lot of um immunological memory and and that's what we live with normally most of us most of our body hasn't got all the antibodies floating around for all the diseases we've ever been encountered but we have got the memory and then soon as you get a small infect amount of infection that memory kicks in and you get a good response and it clears out the, the virus or the bacteria or whatever. So I'm pretty sure we're in a good shape already. We probably don't need to boost. However, that being said, the vaccines in the very elderly and the vulnerable may not have the same level of immunity. They may not be quite as good. They, they look okay, but they may not be quite as good. So the ideal thing, and I think this is where the JCVI will come down, is that we should definitely vaccinate the very elderly and the vulnerable and start them about a year later, which is therefore the coming winter, which would be the right sort of time. Whether They'll want to do it, I would imagine, logistically, they'll want to do it at the same time as the flu boosting. So they'll do it in September, October, November, that sort of time frame, but probably don't need to do it till January. But you might as well do it at the same time. But I think it should only be those vulnerable people and then leave it at that. And then monitoring throughout next year and be prepared with a with a, deciding on which of the vaccines that will be available and have been fully fully approved by then um, should be used in next, next winter's um, booster season. And I think we will be boosting for um, quite a few years and we may be boosting with variants of the vaccines that... that hit all the other variants that are coming out. I mean, that, that I suppose takes me to, to my final question, Clive. Um, you obviously said before the outbreak of COVID that the, the vaccine industry uh, scientists were, were fully expecting or anticipating that there may be a virus, a flu, uh, that may cause some pandemic. And I just wondered from what you have learned or what we have learned from COVID-19, what are your thoughts on the prospect of maybe another pandemic and how prepared we are now from what we've learned. Well, th there will be another pandemic. That's a fact. When is is the thing that nobody knows. Yes. Um, so at the moment, the thing I believe we should be doing is we should be gearing up as though there is going to be a an escape variant of this. So not a new pandemic, but a you know a second wave of this pandemic with a, a complete escape. If if a variant comes that escapes all the immunology that we've put into people then we're back where we started. 
So I honestly believe that the world, and it, it has to be done at every level, should have a very, very uh, rigorous plan on how quickly they can get to the point of vaccinating. Now, of course, on top of vaccinating, if there is a complete new variant, we know what we need to do in terms of locking down. We, we would do things a lot quicker. Um, we'll do what China did probably and, and say, you know, people said nobody would do what China did, which was tell people if they come out of the house, they can't, you know, they go to prison sort of thing or maybe worse. But I think that's what we have to do. We, we'd have to lock right down and get a new vaccine as soon as possible. And I think the efforts to get those vaccines need to be in place and there has to be systems set up to allow us to work with manufacturers to develop vaccines much, much quicker because there'll just be variants of the current one and therefore they won't need full trials. They'll just need, and we, the UK, the Vaccine Task Force has already started those discussions with the regulators, with the clinical uh, groups to be ready to do all that stuff. And we've just got to get the right vaccine and quickly test it and then manufacture it. So stricter lockdowns, but a faster vaccine. Yeah, I think we have, I mean, we, we, learn, we need to learn that lesson. If, if we see that there's a variant that's spreading from another country, we have to close our borders and lock down until we've got a vaccine. Otherwise, we'll go exactly where we've gone this time. And I think that's going to be very, very tough for governments to work out how to do. Well, Clive, thank you so much for your time today. Um, we'll leave it there. And um, good luck. No, pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. I'm your host, Amy Donlan. And for more, check out our weekly Reuters Breaking Views podcast, Views Room, and our daily finance and opinion columns at Reuters.com. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.